Beloved, truly there is no other pasture for your soul than Jesus Christ. And here in this holy meal which we partake of in just a short time, this Lord's Supper, Jesus Christ gives himself to you so that you might partake of his body and blood, that you might share in communion with him. The Lord's Supper is not a work that you perform, just to be clear. That's not what it is. No, beloved, the Supper of our Lord is a gift that you receive. For here in this meal, Jesus Christ is given to you by the power and presence of his Holy Spirit, the one who is, as we confess, the Lord and giver of life. And it is not just any generic life that the Spirit gives to you. It is the life of our risen Lord and Savior, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. As we prepare to consider this morning the work of the Spirit in this sacrament, I invite you to listen again now to a brief reading from God's word from Romans chapter 8, verses 9 to 11. Listen again now to God's word. Paul writes, he says, You, speaking to his readers, speaking to us, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that now may the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of all of our hearts this morning, as we ponder your word, be found pleasing and acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Every week we take the Lord's Supper, we partake of the sacrament, believing that we truly do feed upon the body and blood of Jesus as we partake of this meal. But how? How does this happen? This is the question we left unanswered last week. The scriptures teach that the body of Jesus, though he was crucified and died, has now risen from the dead and is ascended now into heaven. Friends, Jesus' body, though resurrected and glorified, yes, remains still a true human body. His heart beats, his lungs, 
expand and contract. Blood courses through his veins. He has a body like yours, just risen from the dead and glorified and without any taint or corruption. Think, for example, of, Jesus, of, sorry, of Luke's description of the risen Christ with his apostles in Luke 24. When Jesus appears to his friends, having recently died, they're frightened and they assume he must be a ghost or a spirit. But Jesus clears up that misunderstanding. He says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it is I, myself. Touch me, he says. Touch my warm flesh and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, Jesus says, as you see that I have. And then he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, Luke tells us. And he took it and ate it before him and chewed it and swallowed it and ingested it into his stomach because he had a body, friends, a real, true, risen, physical body. And then Luke describes a few verses later how that same Jesus in that same true human body was carried up into heaven and then was seated at the right hand of his Father, ruling over creation and interceding forever for those who are united to him. And that means that the same body, the same human flesh that was conceived in the womb of the virgin, the same human body and flesh that was crucified on the cross, the same body that strode out from the tomb on the third day, that body, the risen flesh of Jesus Christ, now dwells in heaven forever for you. And this is really important because this is the tension that is inherent in the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. We truly feed upon the body and blood of Christ, and yet Christ's body is a true human body localized in time and space, in one place at one time, and residing far away from us in heaven. How can both of these things be true at the same time? <clears throat> now, there are a few suggestions how to hold these things together that don't work very well, I think. The first I want to talk about is the default view, we might say, of the modern evangelical church, which collapses this tension by reinterpreting the words of Jesus and the teaching of Paul by asserting that, well, the Lord's Supper, it, it's not really a feeding upon Christ and his body and blood. It's just a memory, a special way that we memorialize, we remember his death. We think about it, we ponder it brings us as we take this um, ordinance to our minds. But this view, I think, in my opinion, and in the opinion of the Reformed tradition to which our church belongs, doesn't do justice to the teaching of the New Testament that we looked at last week regarding our true participation in Christ's body and blood in the Lord's Supper. Now, along the same lines, though in a different 
direction, the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation, collapses this same tension by reinterpreting the New Testament's clear teaching regarding the truly human body of Jesus by asserting that Jesus' body and blood is localized, becomes present in the sacrament itself in a kind of fundamental way whenever the duly ordained priest performs the Mass. But this view, in my opinion, and in the opinion of the Reformed tradition to which our church belongs, also does not do justice to the teaching of the New Testament regarding the truly human body of the risen and ascended Christ, which is localized in heaven, not on earth. If Jesus' body is localized in the bread and the wine, whenever and wherever on earth the sacrament is taken, then Jesus' body is now something other than a truly human body. Because a truly human body, my body, your body, Jesus' body, can only be in one place at one time. And that place is, as the New Testament teaches, in heaven, in the presence of the Father. So ironically, in some ways, the memorialist view and the Roman Catholic view share the same error, I think. Both views maintain, fail rather, to maintain the fundamental tension that is present in the scriptures regarding the nature and significance of the Lord's Supper and the nature and significance of the true body of the incarnate Christ. Both seek to resolve this tension by reinterpreting one way or another the clear teaching of the scriptures. But the reform view, the view that was first articulated by John Calvin and then codified in every reformed confession of the 16th and 17th centuries, follows a different path. We say yes, Truly, we feed upon the body of blood of Jesus Christ in this meal. We share communion with him. We partake of him. And also, yes, the body of Jesus is a truly human body, like yours or mine, though glorified and risen from the dead. But we argue that the way in which faithful believers feed upon the truly human, incarnate, risen, and ascended body of Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper is by nothing other than the special and miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. It is a work of the Holy Spirit that is a miracle that cannot be fully comprehended. This takes place, we believe, by the work of the Holy Spirit. That is, I believe, the Scripture's answer to how we truly feed upon Christ's body and blood in the Lord's Supper. In particular, John Calvin teaches that Christ does not descend to us in this meal, but rather that we are lifted up to Him by the Spirit. We ascend. We are lifted up by the Spirit, Calvin argues, into heaven. We go to where Jesus is now and feed upon Him there as His body and blood is offered to us. In this sacrament. This is why, by the way, the Reformed tradition has always maintained, as our church does, the centrality of what we call the Sursum Corda. 
Lift up, in Latin, lift up your hearts. Right before communion, the pastor says to the congregation, lift up your hearts, and you say, we lift them up to the Lord. Because we believe that what is taking place here in this sacrament is that we are truly ascending to heaven by the power of the Spirit. And there we feed upon the Christ who is our life. Friends, remember what the apostle said, as we heard earlier today. He says, this is what is happening in your worship. Remember, he's writing this as the, the tabernacle, or the, sorry, the temple worship continues, and it, and it seems glorious and amazing, the temple, with its, its massive pillars and its huge size and its gold and its, all the things that are happening. And meanwhile, these Christians are gathering in little homes and apartments and caves and taking a very simple meal with bread and wine. And the apostle says, don't mistake what is happening when you do these things. For when you worship God on the Lord's day, he says, you come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. You go to the heavenly Jerusalem, he says, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You go into the presence of God, he says, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Our worship is heavenly worship. It is a divine service because God draws us into his own presence by the power of his spirit. If it's not that, then what is the point? What's the point, friends? But why has the Reformed tradition taught that it is the work of the spirit to enable us to feed upon Christ himself? This morning in the readings that we heard from John 14 and from Romans 8, we heard the teaching of Jesus himself and Paul as well on the power and the work of the Spirit. And one of the common themes in both of those readings is that it is the special work of the Spirit to communicate, and I don't just mean verbally communicate, I mean communicate in sense of create union between the life of Jesus and those who belong to him. There are a lot of misconceptions today, I think, about what the primary work of the Spirit is in our modern world. Sometimes when you talk about, hear people talk about the Spirit, you get the impression that the Spirit is primarily there to do these outwardly impressive signs and wonders things that, that people get drawn to. Or sometimes you hear the Spirit, and it's though the Spirit's main uh, purpose is to sort of be this voice that speaks to you in, silently in your mind somehow, giving you private internal sort of direction as to what to do in your life. Now, there are elements of truth in those things. Certainly the Spirit does work miracles. Certainly the Spirit does guide us, though He guides us primarily as we read the Word and He opens the Word to us, the Scriptures. But the New Testament is remarkably consistent if you read it and actually form your doctrine of the Spirit from what it says. Again and again, the New Testament says the primary work of the, of the Holy Spirit is to communicate Christ, is to give Jesus to those who belong to him. And the reason 
that the Spirit needs to do this work is because, as Jesus said to his disciples, I am going to leave you. I'm going to go away. And so we need the Spirit to bring Jesus to us. Think about that gospel reading we heard this morning from John. In that reading, Jesus is dealing precisely with the problem, the tension that his resurrection and ascension will soon bring in terms of his ability to dwell with his disciples, these men that have come to trust in him and rely on his presence. When Jesus is raised from the dead, he will go to heaven. So how will he dwell with them? He says, I will ask the Father, friends, and he will give you another helper to be with you for how long? Forever. Always. Even the spirit of truth. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How will Jesus come to his disciples? By his Spirit, who will dwell with them forever. And it will be as though he himself is with them. And then he goes on and says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. We will abide with him. We will make our dwelling place with him. And how does Jesus do this for you? By his spirit. That's how he abides with you. That's how he is with you. It is by the spirit that Jesus dwells with us forever. And in Romans 8, Paul explains this dynamic further. He says, but if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, The Spirit is life because of righteousness. Notice what he says there. If Christ is in you, how is Christ in us as believers? It's by his Spirit. He says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that is how Christ is in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his Spirit who dwells in you. The Reformed doctrine of the Lord's Supper essentially boils down to three simple points. Point one, the scriptures teach, we hold, that we truly feed upon the body and blood of our Lord in this supper, this sacrament he has given us. Point two, but Christ's body is a localized and true human body in heaven. Point three, therefore it must be the special work of the Spirit to be the personal means by which Jesus actually does this. How we actually are lifted up to him, where we actually receive life, not in some generic way, friend, but through the source of life. As Jesus says in John 5, the Father has given all life to me, and I give it to whom I will. And he gives it by his spirit. Therefore, those who belong to Christ really and truly do feed upon the body and blood of our Lord in this supper, but not in a carnal or fleshly manner, but in a spiritual way. And by spiritual, we don't just mean imaginary. 
We mean by the Spirit. So the realest thing there is. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, even though it seems unbelievable that Christ's flesh, separated from us by such a great distance, penetrates to us so that it becomes our food, let us remember, he says, how far the secret power of the Holy Spirit towers above our senses and how foolish it is to wish to measure his immeasurableness by our measure. What then our mind does not comprehend, let faith conceive that the Spirit truly unites things separated in space. How do we feed upon Christ's body and blood in the Lord's Supper? Our answer is that it is the special and miraculous work of the Holy Spirit who delights to do this, whose special power it is to join things together that are separated by space. The Spirit gives access to us each week fully and freely, friends, to the Christ who is our life, who is truly offered to you in this supper. As we close this morning, I just want to make one brief application of this teaching about the Holy Spirit and the sacrament. And I want to just do it by asking you this question. Friend, as you go through your life, just your normal life, you wake up, you get dressed, you eat breakfast, you brush your teeth, presumably you drive to work or you work from home or wherever you go. And then you come home and you make dinner and you maybe watch some TV and you go to bed. You do it again the next day. In the midst of all of that, whatever that is that you do each day, do you long for something more? I mean, do you? You want more than that? In the midst of all of those things, beloved, are you longing for transcendence, for mystery, the kind of thing that the poets speak of and write about? Do you long to encounter the divine, to behold the face of God? Do you long to experience something or someone that is beyond you, for someone who is so beautiful and wonderful and immense that might make you even, as Luke puts it in his gospel, as the apostles see the risen Christ, to disbelieve with joy, to marvel with wonder. Of course you do. I hope so at least. You're a human being. You long for something more than just what you experience in the mundane day to day. You are made, friend, in the image of God. You are made more than, for more than that, I promise you, for more than labor and survival and getting through the next week or two. And the God who has made you, but made you this way with a kind of restlessness in your heart, 
that only he could fulfill. A deep and abiding desire to know something beyond the normal, beyond the day-to-day, to know wonder and to be filled with beauty and to stand in awe of something bigger than yourself. This is why people climb mountains, people, right? That's why they do it. This is why some of us cry at movies, right? I can't, I don't know if you all know the movie Rudy, but like, I cannot watch that movie without like bawling. This is why people weep when they hear beautiful music. I hope there is, I hope, friend, there is a piece of music that you cannot hear without tears in your eyes. I hope you know that gift. This is why we, you know, get a little dust in our eyes when our children are doing something particularly unexpected or surprising or wonderful. It's because we were made for something more, something bigger than ourselves. We were made for wonder and beauty and transcendence and mystery. That is what you were made for. And the good news, friend, about what we hear, do here every Lord's Day is that here in this meal, in this apparently simple ritual of words spoken and prayers prayed and bread and wine eaten, the truly transcendent, The absolute mysterious is offered to you every Lord's Day. Because here in this meal, every week, the Spirit promises to work a miracle for you. He promises to give you communion with the man who has conquered death and lives now at God's right hand, who is God himself. That's what the Spirit promises to do for you. The church father, John Christostom, says this. This should be our attitude, he says, after we partake of the sacrament week by week. He says, let us then return from that table like lions breathing fire, having become terrible to the devil, thinking on our head, and on the love which he has shown for us. I don't even exactly know what Christostom means by that image, but I love it. We should walk out of these doors like lions breathing fire, knowing that we are terrible to the devil because we have just communed with our Lord, Jesus Christ. I think Christostom speaks in this way, beloved, because he knows that here in this meal, in this supper, we experience something that is more transcendent than the most beautiful mountaintop or beach or wherever you might look, landscape that you could ever find. Something that is more precious than any thing you could ever earn by your work and labor and creativity and whatever it is something that is more wonderful even than the greatest love of any human being, even your spouse. This is better. For here in this simple meal, the Holy Spirit has promised to give you true, real communion with the living God 
in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who has died and now lives forevermore. Here in this meal, by the power of the Spirit, it is as though Jesus himself takes the bread and offers it to you and says, Take and eat. This is my body. It is as though Jesus himself lifts the cup and says, This is my blood, friend. Take it and drink. Because here in this meal, the truly mysterious, the truly transcendent takes place. To quote Calvin once more, he says, Now if anyone should ask me about how this takes place, all the wonder of the Lord's Supper, he says, I shall not be ashamed to confess that it is a secret too lofty either for my mind to comprehend or my words to declare. He says, I can't figure it out mentally, and even if I could, I couldn't tell you about it in words that make any sense. And he says, and to speak more plainly, I rather experience than understand it. Therefore, he says, I here embrace without controversy the truth of God in which I may safely rest. He declares, I'm sorry, he declares his flesh, Calvin says, the food of my soul, and his blood, my drink. And so I offer my soul to him to be fed with such food. And his sacred supper, Calvin says, he bids me take, eat, and drink his body and blood under the symbols of bread and wine. I do not doubt that he himself truly presents them and that I receive them. Beloved, do not doubt as you come to this table. Do not doubt, but take and eat. Do not be afraid. Take and drink and receive once more by the mysterious and wonderful power of the Holy Spirit, the body and blood of your beloved, the Christ who is your life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.